Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In honor of the first week of 2024, we're back with an extra episode featuring one of my favorite neuroscientists, Dr. Judd Brewer. Judd is the king of unpacking your habit loops. He's previously been on the show to discuss addiction and anxiety, and today he's applying that same logic to our hunger hormones. How can we reduce unhealthy food cravings? How can we actually eat intuitively? How do our hunger hormones change as we age? Judd answers all that and more in today's show. It's a great episode to start 2024. So why do we eat when we're not hungry? <laughs> Where should I start? <laughs> Let's hear it all. Yeah, well, it's interesting because our bodies and minds are exquisitely designed for eating, right? Obviously, if we don't eat, we don't survive. And so we have all these baked in survival mechanisms to help us eat. Yet in modern day, it's really interesting. They get hijacked or they get miswired. And so now we're doing all of these things that actually get in the way of our survival because we're setting habits of eating when we're not actually hungry. For example, you know, let's use uh, emotional eating, for example, or stress eating, right? It's so prevalent that we have things called comfort food. Why do we need comfort food? Because our brains are saying, hey, Something in my life is unpleasant. Go make me feel more comfortable. We find some food that numbs us out or makes us feel, you know, kind of zoned out. You know, so our carbs are really good at just like making us pretty mindless. Uh, and then we feel better. And then that feeds back to our brain that says, hey, that was good. When you're stressed, you should eat comfort food. You'll feel more comfortable. And we do it again. So that actually is how any habit is set up. You know, it's a trigger, a behavior, and a result process. And that was actually set up to help us survive because when our ancient ancestors didn't have pro highly processed food, they had to go find food, right? So imagine them out in the woods or on the savannah looking for food. They find some, there's a trigger. They eat some, making sure it's not poisonous. There's the behavior. And their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. And that feeds back to say, hey, you know, when they're back at the cave, the next time their stomach is rumbling, it says, go get that food. And so that dopamine firing actually shifts from finding the food. Ooh, they get the spritz of dopamine. That's where surprise comes in. Surprise makes dopamine fire in our brain. But when it's no longer surprising, they're like, dude, I know where the berries are. That firing of dopamine shifts from, oh, you know, here it is to go get it. And it's that anticipation, that itchy urge of craving that says, go do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in terms of, so I think about it, there's, you know, there's meal time. So we'll just say we're eating three meals a day. There's breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and there's overeating during meal time. And then there's snacking. What do you think when someone at three o'clock says, you know, I'm really, I'm really hungry. How much of it is potentially stress or emotional eating, or maybe I'm dehydrated or 
maybe I am hungry or, or maybe there's something else at play. Like in your, in your view, what, what's really driving hunger? Is it any of those things? Is it all of those things? Is it something else we're not thinking about? It could be all of those things. And I'll add one piece, which is, and it may fall into one of those categories. It may be separate. One thing that I saw in my clinic, I started working with people with binge eating disorder and it took me a long time to figure out, I felt like I was missing something. And that thing that I was missing was that I just assumed that people could tell when they were hungry. And, you know, some of my patients put it this way, and I write about this in The Hunger Habit. Um, they said, you know, I have an urge and I eat. I have an urge and I eat. So that urge could be a physiologic hunger signal that says, hey, you need some food, that homeostatic signal that's out of whack, right? It says, make, make, get me back to homeostasis. Or it could be hedonic hunger. And there's actually a scientific term called hedonic hunger because this is so common. Hedonic, hedonic hunger, hunger is just a fancy word for emotional, you know, emotional uh, urges to eat. So we're not actually hungry, but we call it hedonic hunger because it's based on a feeling. Oh, I'm sad. I'm mad. I'm bored. You know, you name the emotion and somebody has associated that with eating. You know, we eat when we celebrate things. We eat when we are um, sad or mad about things. There's actually a great Weight Watchers commercial from, geez, close to 10 years ago now that you have to actually go and find because they took it down really fast. Because <laughs> as the, one of the former CEOs of the company told me, she's like, wow, that almost tanked the company. That's what she said. Well, then the company tanked anyway without the commercial. So, <laughs> <laughs> But the, the interesting thing about this commercial was it was set to the music um, um, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, right? And so great little tune that everybody knows. Um, and so they started setting it to, you know, uh, they, they had all these scenes of people eating. So the, you know, somebody, this baseball team, you know, little league baseball team, and they're like celebrating their win and they're all eating pizza. And they're like, ah, you know, um, if you're happy and you know it, eat a snack. <laughs> And then they show the other baseball team that was just got crushed by this one. And they're all sad sitting around pizza and eating to commiserate themselves. So they're, if you're sad and you know it, eat a snack. And then it goes on and on. You know, if you're bored, if you're angry, if you're, you know, guilty, all this. Uh, and then at the end they go, um, if you're human, eat your feelings, eat a snack. And I was like, mic drop moment for somebody who put this commercial together because it is so brilliant around how our minds work. Doesn't actually help Weight Watchers because they, you know, they're like, well, just stop doing it, <laughs> which doesn't work. <laughs> but that, that one minute commercial was the best that I've ever seen about somebody just describing all the different ways we, start, we learn to associate eating uh, when we're not hungry. Building off of that, I think everyone knows we have an obesity problem and, and many of us are looking to shed a couple pounds. And when we start to venture into to eating nutrition, you'll often hear, well, you know, see a nutritionist. Should we be seeing you though, instead of a nutritionist or, or, or a shrink or both? Yes. Tell me about your childhood and that will help you stop snacking. Hmm. <laughs> I say that as a card-carrying psychiatrist, and 
so no shade on other psychiatrists. But as a neuroscientist, you know, I haven't seen that work particularly well. So you you highlighted something really important, which is should. Right? Have you heard the joke we should all over ourselves? <laughs> yeah. So that kind of summarizes willpower, right? Oh, I shouldn't eat this, I should eat that. Right. And some people describe this as, you know, they make the food rules and then they put themselves in food jail when they don't obey the rules because they've broken their own law. So long story short, you know, that really doesn't work very well. And it and so you're asking the question, should we see a nutritionist? Sure. Never hurts to have a nutritionist give us some guidelines on how we can eat healthy food. And if we can't afford to see a nutritionist, we can go on the internet and there's a lot of good information out there. Some bad information, so we need to be careful. But there's a you know, like we generally know what we need to do. And I love, you know, Michael Pollan summarizes it so well. You know, he's got these little blurbs that are just great where he's like, you know, if you can't pronounce it, don't eat it, basically. <laughs> you know, if it has more than five ingredients, you know, that type of thing. So he's highlighting what we already know, and the science just shows over and over and over and over. So, you know, if it the more we can eat whole food, you know, like non-processed food, uh, the better off we are. There's a lot of good evidence behind that. So we could see a nutritionist and they could reinforce that. We could go on the internet and they could reinforce that. We could go on TikTok and I'd say, good luck finding the good information, from <laughs> the not as good information. Just go to Mind Body Green. Just listen to this show. You're all good. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, there's this guy named Jason um, and he's got it all dialed in. So it's that information's out there. But the the problem is when we try to put that into action and you say, okay, so should people go see a psychiatrist? This is where, you know, a lot of people, there's this, I'm just trying to think historically how this came about. So if you think back, back to this very dominant paradigm, you know, the Freudian psychoanalysis and the psychodynamic psychotherapy and all this stuff around, like, let's go back to your childhood. And, you know, it's, it's memified and, and um, it's, um, you know, it's paradized in, uh, in movies all the time, right? Tell me, you know, sit on the couch and the, and the shrink doodles behind your head, you know, half, half listening. So, you know, if we talk about our childhood, it, it's not to say that, you know, therapy isn't helpful for people. So I just want to be clear about that. But if you ask this specific question, is therapy going to help somebody change their eating habits? So ask me as a neuroscientist, and I would say, well, let's look at the equations for how behaviors change. Let's look at how habits form and how they break. And there's no variable in that equation for history, you know, for, uh, you know, for what caused this. And so I think about this as, sure, our previous conditioning, right, our childhood, our upbringing, our conditions now, all of this can set up habits, but they just knowing about them doesn't actually break the habit. So that's where we have to go. So you're asking who should they see? I would say see a see a neuroscientist because <laughs> they'll teach you how to work with your brain. <laughs> so I know this is a a generalization, but I I think there's possibly something to explore here. So we've had Jillian Michaels on the show from The Biggest Loser, and her view was, you know, okay, you've got like maybe the dad bod thing, or I'm a busy mom, and you know, I've probably put on 10, 15 pounds, 20 pounds, maybe you know, extra treats there, maybe a little bit too much wine there, it just kind of accumulates over time. And she's like, a lot of that can be dialed in. You just got to move, got to eat right. And then she says, well, then there's the other bucket, 
which is you know north of 50 pounds 75 100 pounds and, and she communicated that you know this is probably something that th there's there's something deeper psychological there and intuitively that made sense to me what's your take uh absolutely so i think there are, and i wouldn't say this is always the case for that but i think we see this a lot and i certainly see this a lot clinically uh, i'm thinking of a guy that i wrote about in the book named rob uh, who came to me he was referred to me for anxiety and he comes into my office he looks pretty anxious you know check 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 he was 40 years of age he had probably had generalized anxiety disorder for 30 years and he had tried to numb himself from his anxiety by eating fast food he described it as being addicted to eating fast food so when he walked into my office he weighed 400 pounds okay unhealthy weight and he had obstructive sleep apnea he had hypertension he had a fatty liver he had basically pateed his liver and he knew and he also had health anxiety on top of his regular anxiety because he knew his eating patterns weren't helping he tried everything okay so here's a real world example of what uh, what did you say jillian was talking about yes so for a lot of people this can be the case and so you know he said we tried everything and I actually wrote about him also in my unwinding anxiety book because he was this remarkable case where he he really learned how his mind works learned how to work with his mind and he he went from having panic attacks driving his car to becoming an uber driver right and in the process and actually the first piece that I saw in terms of uh, him learning how to work with his mind. So I'd send him home at our first visit to start mapping out his habit loops around anxiety. And he comes back and he was so excited when he walks into my office. I was like, great, you know, he, you know, patients vote with their feet. One, he comes back and two, he's excited to come back. And he was really excited to tell me something. The first thing he said to me, sits down, first thing right out of his mouth, hey doc, I lost 14 pounds. And I looked at him because I couldn't remember. This is two weeks after our first visit. I was like, did we talk about weight loss? I can't remember, you know? And he goes, don't worry, we didn't talk about weight loss, but you told me to bump out my habit loops. And his habit loop was anxiety, triggered him to eat fast food, which then typically would numb him out. But he realized as he was mapping this, it was actually causing more health anxiety for him. So it was making him feel worse. And so just that mapping process helped him dial in and see that the eating the fast food was not rewarding for him. So he was tapping into this basic process in his brain of re reinforcement learning, of reward-based learning, right? And so if something's rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to do it even more if we notice how rewarding it is. And if we see that it's not rewarding, we become disenchanted with it. We get less excited to do it. And so that simple act of awareness, right? It wasn't willpower. It wasn't shoulds. It wasn't seeing a nutritionist. It was, oh, when I'm anxious, I eat fast food and that makes me more anxious. And so that gave him the negative reinforcement to start stepping out of that habit loop. So over the course of the next year, he lost over 100 pounds. He's still, this was four or five years ago now. He is still slowly losing weight. And he said it was the easiest weight loss he's ever had. And importantly, he's maintained that gain, right? He hasn't yo-yo dieted because it wasn't a diet. It was, it was an aware, think of it as an awareness diet. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was chewing on awareness, so to speak.
That's fantastic. So if we were to use a real world example of someone knows they're stressed or someone knows they're anxious and they know they're going to reach for that thing, whatever it might be, maybe it's a donut or chips or what have you walk us through how that person could, could break that loop. What, what should they do? It's 3 PM. I'm stressed. I'm about to like grab that donut. What should I do? Yeah. So I think of this as a three-step process. So the first step is being able to map out these habit loops. And there, uh, it's pretty straightforward where, you know, what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result, right? And the triggers are actually the least important part of the equation. So if somebody is, um, you know, they can't identify a trigger, not a big deal, okay? Um, but they can notice what the behavior is. So we could pick several as examples. So one is, you know, I'm stressed. It's 3 p.m. I'm stressed. Okay, let's just use that as a simple and common one. So they, they notice the behavior. Oh, I'm stressed. And then they notice, they map into that next part. What's the result of the behavior? And this is really important. The, um, the, they have to see very, I wouldn't say, let me change it and say it this way. They have to feel what the result of the behavior is. So most people know they, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't eat this. I shouldn't overeat. You know, it's stress eating, but they really have to feel because the feeling body is much stronger than the thinking brain. And so if they can feel into the results of eating when they're stressed and see that those results aren't actually that good, and this also applies for overeating as well, that's where they become start to become just disenchanted with the behavior. And that's the second critical step of breaking out of these habit loops. It's that disenchantment piece. I'm going to pause there before I go on. I want to make sure that makes sense. Disenchantment, are you speaking about potential shame that occurs after I, I had this thing? No. Nope, nope, nope. Shame is also a habit loop or shame spiral, especially when you mix it with guilt. That's a toxic combination. You know, somebody feels guilty about what they did and they feel ashamed about who they are. And then those two just feed on each other and they get into this death spiral of shame and guilt. Is it safe to say that most people probably don't feel good after they do that thing, whether they eat the box of donuts or have the two gallons of ice cream after they know? I think most people probably don't feel great about doing it because they know they shouldn't do it and yet they did it. Yeah, we've actually done a scientific study specifically with that question. And so we have this Eat Right Now app that we can actually look to see how quickly somebody's reward value drops. And what we have people do is start paying attention as they overeat or eat, uh, eat food, you know, like junk food. And we can see how quickly that reward value drops below zero. Ready for this? Yes. In one study, it dropped below zero within 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention as they overate. Because as you pointed out, if somebody pays attention, their body is going to tell them, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This doesn't feel good. So what do you mean by 10 to 15 times? Could you clarify? Like 10 to 15 bites or 10 to 15, like repeating the... Episodes. Yeah. Episodes. So somebody has an episode where they are, you know, they're going into like an overeating where they have habitually overeat. Let's put it that way. And what we have them do is we have them pay attention as they overeat. So what does it feel like? What are the emotions that come up and how content do they feel? 
they see pretty quickly, and I should say they feel pretty quickly that there's, you know, their body is telling them, hey, overeating is not, it just doesn't feel good. So that piece, and it's, so it's, it's not bites, but you can actually start to break it down to bites after that. So in this study, we just look at episodes, how many times, you know, with an, with an eating episode, let's say, and it only took 10 to 15 times for that to drop below zero and for people to start shifting that behavior. So shifting that behavior is recognizing, okay, this doesn't feel good. Let's, let's figure out a solution here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you mentioned willpower. Sounds like you don't believe in willpower in terms of being able to. I'd like to, but as a neuroscientist, I, I, it's not, it's not actually in the neuroscience, uh, lexicon. So I'll use me as an example. So I have I have rules, some basic rules generally around how I eat, say Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday or more generally through the week, where I I try to eat generally healthy in terms of you know not having treats or just just being mindful of what I'm putting in my body. And with that said, you know so let's just call that like. The, 80, I live by the 80-20 rule where, you know, I'm pretty good 80% of the time. Maybe it slides to 70 if I'm on vacation, maybe 60, but like I'm pretty good for that, like that time period. And then the rest, the 20% or 30%, I kind of do whatever I want and I, and I live by it. And if I'm presented with an option, when I've made a decision, like this is the period, it's Monday, you know, I'll use habit stacking. Like Mondays, I'm usually like really solid. Like I start my week, I got to go to the gym. I got to like make sure the diet's dialed in. Like it is extraordinarily rare that I would divert from my routine on Monday, unless it's like, you know, a, a, a amazing celebration where I'm just like, you know, it's someone's birthday or so I, I view that as I have a plan or I have willpower or, or you say, no, well, what is it that, that, and I don't think I'm unique here. I think a lot of people live by kind of the 80, 20. So what is it that I have this, that we, people generally have the ability to make some rules, you know, Monday's off limits. Monday's my day to get everything in order. What do we have if it's not willpower? So if you look at, look at it this way, and these, these research groups have specifically looked at, you know, this quote unquote willpower. And what they've found is that it's actually more correlated with habit. So if somebody sets the habit up on, on Monday, I go to the gym, that's what they tell themselves the story about and saying, oh, this is my willpower. But it's really like, oh, Monday is my day to go to the gym. So imagine if you had set that up on Fridays. Fridays, I always go to the gym, no matter what. It's been a terrible week, but I'm going to go to the gym. You could say, well, that's willpower. Or you could say it's a habit. And the science suggests that it's actually more of a habit. So where does personality come into play here? On the show, we've talked about you know, the, the abstainer versus the, the moderator personality types, the, 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 the moderation or the moderator being, you know, someone like myself lives by the 80, 20, whereas the abstainer, maybe this, this person is completely aware, you know, I, I can't touch sugar because I can't stop, or I can't touch alcohol or, or whatever it might be. Uh, how, how do you think about one's personality type here and being in touch with that? That's a good question. So my lab hasn't done any specific research with this, but clinically I've seen, you know, I've seen a fair number of people who say, let's use sugar as an example. It's like just every time I eat sugar, I'm off the rails. And so I just don't eat sugar. 
right? So they they just they know this is quote unquote their personality. They're like, this is who I am. And then there are others who can really listen to their bodies. And when they can really be carefully listening to their bodies, their bodies help them moderate well. And and I'll also say, you know, back in the when people first started coming up with personality quizzes and questionnaires, they used to think the personality is like who we are. But that's now changing in the science where these are changeable and they're not, they're more, they certainly become trait-like because they are more stable than states. But the more you tr take a state and try it on over and over and over, that state become a, can become a trait. And I love this quote from Alan Watts where he says, you know, the ego, he who believes himself, um, you know, to who he is or something like that is nothing but a pattern of habits. And so what he's highlighting is, you know, personality is a habit. It's who we tell ourselves, you know, that we are. It's the story that we're like, yep, that's me. I'm an abstainer or I'm an 80-20 guy or I always go to the gym every Monday, right? You could say I'm a Monday gym personality, but it's, it's a habit. In some ways, being an all or nothing personality is probably easier because you remove choice to some degree. Yes. It's so it, it certainly because choice can feel challenging and that's where our brain gets mixed up. Tell me more. Yeah. So this is where, this is where it gets really interesting with the neuroscience. So if you look at the equations for behavior change, uh, these guys back in the seventies, Roscorla and Wagner came up with this equation for reinforcement learning. And it is still, we still use it in our, in our uh, studies today because it is so powerful. And so it's been just reproven over and over and over and over. And the idea, idea there is, the concept behind it is that a habit is set up so that we can do something automatically. That's kind of a definition of a habit. It's automatic behavior. We do it without thinking. That habit gets set up based on how rewarding something is in that moment, in that context. And so we might take a habit forward in life and not pay attention now as compared to when it was first set up. And we're like, oh, it's a habit. For example, you know, if you think of cake and we learn when we're kids that cake tastes good and it, we associate it with parties and ice cream and presents and all that. So we have this, you know, this idea, the cake habit, right? And so we see cake, eat cake type of thing. So it can be hard to force ourselves not to eat cake. But if you look at the equations there, the equations say, if you attention, you can affect this error term. And the error term it determines whether we make something more reinforcing or less reinforcing. Just to keep it simple, uh, let's use cake as an example. Let's say that I have a certain reward value of chocolate cake set up in my head and a new bakery opens up in my neighborhood and I go in there and I eat their cake. If it's the best cake I've ever had, I get what's called a positive prediction error. My brain says, oh, wow, that's really good. And I learned this is a good bakery. Dopamine spritz, I learned something. On the other hand, if I'm like, eh, I've had better, I get what's called a negative prediction error that says, hey, don't bother coming back here. Also, dopamine spritz, and I learn, hey, don't come back here. So that is how we learn, is through paying attention. And that is how we shift habits. That's how we change behaviors. So none of this has to do with willpower. None of this has to do with our childhood. Those things, just the childhood piece or the previous conditions are what set up the habit. But to change the habit, we have to pay attention and not in a way that we're telling ourselves I shouldn't eat cake, 
but in a way that we're feeling ourselves. Oh, when I eat this much cake in this circumstance, it's not, you know, it doesn't help me. And that's what helps people, the moderators actually moderate because often people are listening to their bodies rather than telling themselves they shouldn't do something. Where does our ability to delay gratification come in? <laughs> you know, the famous marshmallow test with kids, you know, you, you can have one marshmallow right now, or you can wait and get two marshmallows tomorrow. What do you want to do? Mm -hmm. Well, some of that research is coming under question. You might have heard about this. No, I have not. What, 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 what happened with the marshmallows? Yeah. So it, it turned out, and this is Walter Michel, and, you know, and he, I think he did the first experiment at Stanford. And basically, it was all like faculty's kids. So all these very privileged kids um, came in, and they, had, they could look into the future. And so people started repeating these experiments in people that weren't you know, like Stanford faculty kids. And the, ex the experiment basically doesn't hold up so well. Interesting. Yeah. So there was a great, I don't remember, it might've been hidden brain or something where they dove into the, um, dove into the science behind this. It's, it's worth looking up because you know, it's this famous test that may not be as bulletproof as people think. But, but what about this idea of focusing on the desired outcome we'd like in the future? And so I'll, I'll use, I'll, I'll just use this quote. It's a polarizing quote. Please. Let's go there. I don't think I've used this one on the podcast. It, it's famous from Kate Moss, of all people. Nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. Yeah. Yeah. Say it one more time. It's such a, a... Nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. So, okay, I'm reading into that. Kate's saying, well, you know, I, I like feeling skinny, being skinny, and there's no food that's going to make me feel as good as I feel when I'm at my ideal skinny body weight. And no judgment, but it's kind of interesting. It is. So this highlights a couple of things. And one thing I want I want to highlight is, you know, I don't know Kate Moss. I'm not her physician. Neither do I. She's into wellness. She started like an apothecary brand or something. I think she's done a 180. Go Kate. Let's just say I'm not sure I would encourage people to to use her as a standard for healthy weight. At least at least her back then, right? Sure, but but no, look, no judgment. But I think it's it, the, the, it's interesting, right? Right. So let's 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 double click on what we can actually learn from this, right? So, I, but I just wanted to caveat that, you know, because this is where there's a huge amount of societal judgment for how we look, and that causes shame and guilt, and and can lead to unhealthy eating patterns. And I've seen this a ton in my clinic, and I would really love to see us change that dialogue where we can really learn to help people be healthy. You know, it's kind of, we hear all these things like healthy at every size and, and stuff like that. So, but if we go, if we double click on that, you know, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels, we can look to see, well, what's more rewarding for her? You know, and we can extrapolate because I don't know her experience, but we can extrapolate. Okay, if we look at it from a neuroscience standpoint, we're gonna, our brains are gonna pick a behavior that is more rewarding. And she, she it's all right there, right? She can compare eating, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. And so she com her brain compares eating whatever to skinny. And if skinny is more rewarding, she's going to stick with skinny. That is the more rewarding behavior. And so that, I assume, you know, extrapolating from that comment, 
that's what helped her moderate her eating. Do you think building off of that, what's your take on intuitive eating? Mm. I love it. I love it. So, you know, and I don't remember because they have like 10 guidelines and I can never remember guidelines. All I can remember is like science and, and what my patients do that's simple. <laughs> but it fits beautifully with what our neuroscience is showing, which is, you know, basically if you boil it down to one thing, listen to your body, right? Your, bo your feeling body is much stronger than your thinking brain. So if we feel into our experience, and this is what our science is showing, right? If we have people pay attention when they overeat, very quickly, they see that overeating doesn't feel good. So we can actually take that Kate Moss quote and substitute skinny with nothing, you know, does overeating feel better than not overeating, right? The not overeating feels better than overeating. We still get to enjoy the food, but actually when people overeat, it doesn't actually feel very good and it doesn't even taste as good because their body is telling them, hey, this is too much. Well, how does one do a good job of really connecting to their body? Because I think some people can be numb, you know, whether it's alcohol, fast food, processed food, you know, one can kind of lose that sense. And, you know, I'll speak from personal experience in my 20s when I was going out too much, drinking too much, and then having, you know, pizza at 2 a.m. or McDonald's, like clearly I wasn't in touch. Like, did it did it really, you know, feel good to have, you know, for those in New York, you know, the Papaya King hot dog at, you know, hot dogs, plural, at 4 a.m.? Did that really feel like, was I really in touch with my body at 4 a.m.? No, I drank way too much. And I wanted to eat. And then the next morning it didn't. So I would argue that like I wasn't my body. I was listening to my, I was listening at 4 a.m. I really wanted it. And then, you know, fast forward when I started to be more conscious around what I was putting into my body, you know, a lot of it started with yoga. You know, I'm, I'm breathing, I'm feeling my body in ways I hadn't felt before. I started to become more in touch. And I'll use the, the example. I don't think that many people do yoga for an hour and then immediately say, I mean, I'm going to Burger King after. Like you just don't see it. <laughs> habit stacking. <laughs> yoga, Burger King, habit stacking. I think you generally, yoga is an example. You're moving your body, you're breathing, you're becoming more in tune. I think you make better decisions, but I also think that some people, I, I think it's a little tricky. I like the idea of intuitive eating, but I think it can be challenging if your, your taste buds, your feelings are being hijacked by other substances. Yeah, I agree. And I think this is where, you know, it's a great concept and some people really benefit from it. And I've heard a number of people say, I get it and I don't know how to implement it, you know? So the, I think the key here that you're highlighting, well, a couple of, you're highlighting a couple of things, if I'm hearing this correctly. One is when we're intoxicated, you know, I think you said it's when I got and drank a bunch and partied, right? That's where the, the alcohol on the brain is, makes it very hard to pay attention. That's kind of a, the whole point for a lot of people, the whole point of alcohol. They don't have to think. They can just go and you know, be disinhibited. That disinhibition shifts us from meeting our needs to feeding our wants. And so your brain on alcohol, tell me if I'm wrong here, but your brain on alcohol says, hey, dude, hot dog. And I, we associate eating the hot dog with the partying. You're probably not hungry. Or maybe you're a little hungry if you've been, you know, burning energy until 4 a.m. Um, so 
it's that want, I want a hot dog as compared to being able to step back and be like, Jason, what do I need right now? I probably need to go to bed, (laughs) right? And so now your yoga you that gets more in touch with your body can listen to your body and ask, what do I need instead of feeding those urges of the wants? But stop me there. Am I getting that right in terms of your experience? Yeah, I I think, look, and I also, where I'm going with this is with ultra processed food and fast food, I I view it as almost impossible to compete as a human. A lot of those foods are designed to make us consume more. In the same way, I'll use social media, Instagram, the, the algorithm, Instagram, TikTok, is designed to keep us on the platform. And there are thousands of engineers working all day to make sure we stay on that thing. And just there are thousands of food scientists whose job is to make us eat more of that, you know, potato chip, for example. And I think it's really hard to compete. I'm just a human. I'm not going to win. Well, I'm not as defeatist there as that statement. And we've seen the science behind it. So I'm actually pretty optimistic here. Let's hear it. Yeah. And I and the same thing applies whether it's social media or food. So social media engineers, they're all working overtime and getting bonuses the more addicted they get us, right? That's I don't know how they sleep, but that's their, you know, that's that's their um ethics. <laughs> um, you know, money is a big driver. And I get that and people have to to have to feed their families. The if you look at food, do you know when the Lay's potato chip lo, uh, mantra came out? I'll call it a mantra because you it's, it's still around today. Bet you can't eat just one. Yes, yes. I don't remember. I, I don't remember, but it's quite good, isn't it? It's great. So uh, I'll start with as a teaser. It came out the same year that Weight Watchers was founded, and that was 1963. 1963. Wow. 1963. So they've been engineering potato chips forever, right? Probably since potato chips were born, so to speak. (laughs) And the food industry, it's interesting that the tobacco industry, when they started getting in trouble in the 80s with, you know, not addictive, oops, um, they bought up all the food companies. And so they put their engineers onto new projects, such as making food addictive. And they have everything from vanishing caloric density to bliss point to uh, feelings of control, like Lunchables. You know, it, those are specifically marketed so kids could feel like they had some control over their lives. Because, you know, teenage kids, um, junior high kids, you know, they're just getting to this age where like they want to feel like they're autonomous beings and their parents are always telling them what to do. And so Lunchables, this ter- you know, not very healthy option, is there like, I can, you know, I have some control over my choices. And it's interesting, I teach a class on craving at Brown and my students, they consistently come back and they're like, oh yeah, I remember Lunchables. They didn't taste very good, but I just loved them and they didn't even know why. So they're, they're every, you can, every conceivable place where somebody could design addiction into food has been done and it continues to be done. You know, So there's, I love the, uh, my favorite peer reviewed journal, The Onion. <laughs> They they had a headline that says Doritos celebrates its one millionth ingredient. 
Anyway, the one area I am optimistic, let's just call it with big food, is, you know, a decade ago, you couldn't find healthier or better for you options. And now there are so many, you know, whether it's, you know, Primal Kitchen Mayo, Hue Chocolate, Siete Tortillas, Unreal, just like I could go on and on. And so if you do want to have a snack, you're pressed for time. Maybe you do want a better potato chip or a better chocolate bar or what have you. Like, there's actually like great options with very few ingredients and they're clean. Whereas 10, 20 years ago, it's like if you wanted a chip, you're getting a laundry list of ingredients, half of which you have no idea what they are. Yeah. So that actually feeds into why I'm optimistic, you know, because you could think thousands of food engineers, just like thousands of social media engineers, you know, getting us addicted. And here I would say the simple thing, which is if we don't know how our minds work, there's no way we're going to be in control and they're going to get us. And so many people, that's a majority, vast majority of people, they don't know how their minds work. And so they're like, I don't know, I'm addicted to my phone. I don't know why I can't eat just one. And if we learn how our minds work, we can learn to work with our minds. And we've seen this over and over and over. So we did a study with our Eat Right Now app. We got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. 40%, right? That that program is now actually a, a, a CDC-recognized uh, diabetes prevention program because the data are solid enough to show that if you bring awareness to your experience, that awareness can help us not only let go and step out of these old unhealthy eating habits so we can actually directly challenge that processed thing. And we can also lean into how good it feels when we eat clean, for example. So for me, you know, as, as you and I were just about to start the episode, I was eating a snack because I was coming hot from another meeting. I, it was, it's organic protein. <laughs> You know, and I know how good my body feels when I eat an organic, you know, or mostly organic ingredients. It's still processed to some degree, but when I eat protein, as compared to eating what used to be my nemesis, which was gummy worms, Ooh. I know I couldn't have a bag in my house because I'd eat the whole thing. But when I started paying attention, no matter how much they engineered it, I just paid attention. I was like. For me, it was like, oh, this is kind of like petroleum <laughs> type. And it had this sickly, too sweet force, like want to have more. And so I was like, wow, this isn't actually that great. And I feel terrible after I ate the whole bag. I'll tell you, you know, I won't go into the details of my GI tract, but let's just say it was saying, hey, dude, are you sure you want to do this? And then I started comparing it to eating blueberries. And to me, to me, I, I could wax poetic about blueberries, but let's just say they were a bigger, better offer. <laughs> so on that note, what, what what do you eat on a daily? Like walk us through a typical breakfast, lunch, snack, and dinner. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, uh, and it's somewhat routine now because this is just what we do. Um, typically, so for breakfast, so I try to eat plant-based except for eggs. Uh, I, I just, eggs are a great protein source. I, my body feels good. So I, I'll typically start uh, the my morning with eggs and my wife and I have a bread machine. So we, over the last seven years, we kind of dialed in this uh, whole grain, nutty, um, you know, chia seed bread formula. And so we have this really good tasting bread. That's like, you know, pretty good. And it's whole grain, you know, so I'll, I'll have a little bit of toast and eggs and then I'll, um, because our bread is so good sometime midday, I'll often have avocado toast. 
because I just love avocado toast. <laughs> Enough said. Um, but then I'll have like a, a protein shake if I'm on the go. Um, you know, there's great uh, plant-based protein powders that I'll mix those with spinach and blueberries uh, and soy milk usually. Uh, it's a great, you know, great midday thing. And then my wife and I usually cook like a big pot of something for the whole week or two somethings where we'll have, you know, um, you know, like a vegetarian chili or something like that. And I love home cooked stuff because I know it, it tastes good and it's, it's clean. It feels good. And then we'll air fry some vegetables every, you know, every night. Cause it's just like five minutes and you don't have to watch the thing and it's clean. So everything from okra to broccoli to Brussels sprouts to green beans, you know, you can air fry just about anything and it's good. Do I see the hunger habit cookbook coming out in 2025? Oh God. Oh God. There are so many cookbooks out there. It's not even funny. So don't, don't plant seeds in my ear, in my brain. Cause I'll be like, but Jason was like, mm, I wonder, no, there, there are plenty, you know, we use other people's recipes and they're great. So I like the neuroscience and I like to cook healthy food, but I'm probably not going to be the, the, the cookbook guy. We'll see when I, when I get an email in a year from now from your publicist or you say, hey, the cookbook is... Uh... I'm happy to share my bread formula with anyone. And I'm also happy to share my kombucha formula with anyone because I've over the years, I've kind of been dialing in brewing kombucha. And I do that as a, as a, as a fun Sunday routine. You know, it's like every Sunday I have two cycles of kombucha going and we do like, you know, fresh ginger or um, dragon fruit and acai, you know, like we've kind of dialed in some flavors that taste really good and it's a lot cheaper than buying it because <laughs> I drink a lot of kombucha. <laughs> Does any of this change as we age? Well, that's a good question. I don't know the specifics and I think this whole set point and, you know, midlife caloric needs thing is is coming into question as well as people do better bigger studies but i can say i could probably and be curious to hear what you'd say when i was five i could probably eat cake for breakfast lunch and dinner and be fine and i know that's not the case now and i'm not five anymore how about you i think hunger cues if i were to try to tap into my childhood memories because you have the structure of school like you didn't have the ability to reach for something at 3 p.m. or 10.30. It's like you you had breakfast at home, you have lunch at school, and then it was dinner at home. So like the, the hunger, I think that came into play for me as I entered college where I was like, oh my God, I can do anything here. There's like this whole food that they have Pizza Hut on campus. What? Taco Bell? This is insane. Probably playing sports. So you're like, you could just keep downing it. And I knew nothing about nutrition. I thought it was great to have like, you know, 48 ounces of soda or Gatorade. And then like, it was just, I knew nothing. Complete garbage, nothing. So I think in college, choice enters the equation. What about men and women? Any differences you found by gender? Good question. So we haven't done those specific studies. I'm aware some studies have been done with chocolate in, in particular, uh, with men and women, and there seem to be differences there in terms of cravings. I can't remember the specifics, but I read some pretty cool studies If folks, I'm sure they can look that up. Uh, overall- Do you recall which gender responded more to chocolate? I think it was, it was uh, people who identify as women, yeah. So women w crave chocolate more than men? I can't remember if it was a quantity, like more women crave chocolate. That's what I want to say. It, but it's been a while since I've looked at those studies. But I think that's what it was. Yeah. Got it. So on that note, you could wave your magic wand, get funding for any study 
all the resources in the world, what, what would that study be? Oh, what a great question. You see me craving. <laughs> like, uh, what would be the best study in the world? It could be a surfing study. I, I, before we started taping, I, I discovered we've had you on the show multiple times. I didn't know you had this passion for surfing, you know, like a, a good professor at Brown. I, you know, most professors at Brown have passions for passion for surfing. Well, hi, my name is Judd. I'm an addict. Uh, I fully admit it. I am out of out of control um yes i have been known to cancel meetings um, <laughs> when the surf is good because <laughs> it's not always good in rhode island the, what i would say here i'm just thinking back to what is the biggest problem that i see right now and i don't the biggest problem that's tractable something that we can do and the biggest problem here is not to ban companies from making addictive food because i think they've they've got their lobby groups are too big for that what I would say is the biggest problem is this willpower myth. And you can, you can see how every diet program out there can say, hey, my formula is the one, just use my formula and you'll win. You know, it's like if you look back to Weight Watchers in the 1960s, they're like calories in, calories out. I learned that same formula in medical school. And that was, you know, it turns out that that formula is true, but it's not just like, you know, don't eat the cake and eat the salad instead. You know, that's the that willpower myth piece. So I see that as the biggest concern. And so I would I would design a study around something very sim simple and practical, which would be you're probably building on some of our previous studies that my lab's done, where you know we've just looked at you know how far can awareness take us where willpower falls down, and I think that would be. You know, from a public health perspective, what are the simplest and easy ways to train people to pay attention as they eat and to help them basically learn how their mind works so they can learn to work with their mind? And that, I think that would be the study I would do. I don't know the specifics because I had never thought of that, that specific question until you asked it. But I would look for something very pragmatic there around like how far can, can awareness go? That would be the basic premise. What do you think? Got it. I, well, I, well, we've got a, got a lot of listeners. Maybe maybe our listeners will open up their checkbooks and uh, get it going. We, we've covered a lot today, other than obviously pick up the book. I'll hold it up. The, the Hunger Habit. Uh, anything you'd like to leave our audience with that we haven't touched on? No, I think we covered just about everything. So yeah, I would. I would. Well, actually, one thing I would say, and I talk more about it in the book, is is don't underestimate the power of curiosity. You know, I think of curiosity as a superpower and it in itself, if we just apply it to what we've been talking about, if we have a craving, what feels better fighting that craving or getting curious about what it feels like in our body? And that would be kind of the koan I would leave with people to explore themselves. How strong is curiosity for you? Fascinating. Judd, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure.